Yesterday's headline of the News Gazette read, Attack Baffles Those Who Knew Shooter. It refers to the uh, young man who uh, killed five at Northern Illinois University before turning the gun on himself. And the word that stood out to me in this headline is the word baffles. Baffles. Because this whole scene, this whole incident, this tragedy is just, it's, it is baffling. And investigators need to do their job, and they're trying to you know, try to figure out about the background and the context, and what is it that would try to help them understand why something like this would happen, and And they need to do their job. And at the end of the day, I, I wonder how comforting whatever answers they find are really going to be. I wonder. It's not to say that they don't need to do their job. Of course. Of course. And how do you respond to the victims, the families, those who remain alive? What, what word? What do they need? in the context of this word baffling. What do they need? What do hurting, aching people, suffering people, especially in the face of unexplained suffering, what do they need? And in a word, it's comfort. It's comfort, and that's what I want us to talk about this morning. They need comfort. And God's Word is very relevant when it comes to what comfort needs to look like and what, it, what how a picture, a portrait of comfort. When we look at the Bible, we see a very, very clear how God wants us to comfort those who are suffering and especially those who are experiencing unexplained suffering. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Job is visited by some of his best friends. And as we look at their interactions with him, today we're going to pay attention to the kind of comfort that God expects, the, God, the kind of comfort that God wants. We're going to see that. We're going to see that in their lives, in the lives of Job's friends. And then as we keep reading, we're going to see, well, just the opposite of that. We're going to see what, what miserable comfort looks like. And we're going to look to them. But before we have communion, we're going to see the source of ultimate comfort. All right? What comfort looks like, what God wants, what God doesn't want. And then we're going to look to the source of ultimate comfort. Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Job is on the ash heap. He's at the top heap of the dump. And he's been stripped of his possessions. And he's been stripped of all of his family except for his wife, who in chapter 2 said, why don't you just pull the plug and end it? Curse God and die. 
But Job did not. The Bible says he did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And his friends come, verse 11 says, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, Naamathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was was Job 2, 11 through 13. Really, is there anything that needs to be added to these words here about what biblical, God-honoring comfort looks like than to just to see what Job's friends actually did? I mean, They came with every intent to sympathize with him and comfort him. And they saw him. They they couldn't even recognize him. This once godfather of the sheiks of the east and and his fellow, his brother sheiks, they come and they just don't recognize him anymore because of the sufferings. And and they just wept and they they got down on the, they, they kicked off their their designer shoes and they ripped their double-breasted suits off and ripped off their ties and they just sat with their brother among the ash heap and they just wept and cried and tore their robes. And that is exactly what we need to do to those who are suffering, to those who are experiencing inexplicable, unexplained suffering. That is, that is what we need to do. Lewis Smead's was a, a teacher at a Fuller Theological Seminary. He wrote many books. He, in one of his books, he wrote, he said, we suffer with people when we choose freely to let their hurt hurt us. In the irony of chosen pain, we decide to accept the pain we want to do without. We will, we will to be hurt with a hurt we'd rather not feel. That sounds a lot like the cross, doesn't it? Not not to get our pleasure from our friend, but to get hurt with them. To get hurt with them. And if you want to know how to comfort someone when they are hurting, to comfort biblically is to sit at ground zero with them and weep and sob, and ache, and be still. No one said a word for seven days. And just be, just be. That, that's biblical comfort. Yeah. Joseph Bailey Joseph Bailey was a pastor who uh, his three sons uh, were killed. 
uh, I think two by accident and one uh, by leukemia. And uh, I mean, you just, lost, you just saw he said three boys. He's written a little book about this called A View from the Hearse. I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask me leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour and more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. You see it here? You want to know how to comfort the hurting? In the midst of their inexplicable suffering, just sit at ground zero and weep and sob and be and be still. That's what this says. And you don't need to go to seminary to learn how to do that. You don't. You don't need to be ordained to know how to do that. You just need to remember Job chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 and 13, if you want to comfort the way God wants us to comfort. There it is, right there. Sit at ground zero. And when, see, when, then when that happens, when that happens, oh, in, in, that, in that safe, sacred ground zero, being, sobbing, weeping, sitting among the ashes, pouring dust over yourself moment, what happens is that, is that you, and I, I've experienced this, I'm sure you have, where you come beside someone who is suffering and then it's almost like this, this volcanic explosion takes place in their heart and in their life. And, and they, they, just, they just suddenly just, it's, it's almost like lancing this, this infected boil that just spews over. I think that's what happens in Job's life here. Because chapter 3 says, after this, after what? After coming by agreement, after coming with the intention to sympathize and comfort, after weeping and sobbing and putting dust on their heads, after this, chapter 3 verse 1 says, Job opened his mouth and, and Job said things that he would not ordinarily say, but, but the, this volcanic spewing of emotion and pain and grief takes place. Job cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish. And the night it was said, a boy is born. Job utters this death wish. Job wishes he had been stillborn. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. And to really fully get the impact of Job chapter 3, you need to, while you're reading this, Think about Genesis chapter 1, where God says in Genesis chapter 1, let there be light, and there was light, and God said it was good. And God said, let there be this, and there was, and it was good. Well, Job is what, uttering what Bible teachers call a, a, 
a counter-cosmic incantation. Job is seeking to undo what God did in Genesis chapter 3, uh, Genesis chapter 1. Job is just saying, I want there to be darkness. I want there to be chaos. I want there to be disorder. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a, may a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. And then if you notice here in verse 11, Job cries out five why questions. Why? Why, verse 11, did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the room? Verse 12, why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? Verse 16, why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? Why? why? Verse 20, why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? Verse 20. Three, why? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Satan accused God of hedging Job in wealth. Job accuses God of hedging him in unexplained suffering. He says, I have no peace, no quietness, no rest, but only turmoil. Wow. Where did all of that come from? Where did it come from? I mean, you... You know, is this the same Job? Is this the same Job as the Job who said in 121, the Lord gave and the Lord take away? Yes, it's the same Job. It's the same Job. It's not two different Jobs. It's the same Job. You know what this is like. This, this initial shock of suffering has given way to the unrelenting ache and pain of grief. Grief so great you know, Job says things he wouldn't ordinarily say. One Bible teacher wrote, soldiers have been known to get a leg blown off by a landmine and run on a raw stump back to safety, but then cry like a baby at the pain of surgery and healing. Likewise, it's one thing to bear a sudden tragedy. It's quite another thing to suffer its pain for weeks and months and even years afterwards. Oh, you're strong at the funeral. Oh, yeah. Yes. And then you go home and you look at the empty chair and the bedroom is empty and the closet is empty and the house is empty and the basement is empty and the ache is there and it just won't go away. I think that chapter 3 was, 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 partly, was partly made possible by the way his friends comforted him in chapter 2 verses 1, 11 through 13. So the question is, what does he need? What's he need now? What's he need? How do you respond to a chapter 3? How do you, how do you respond? More of the same. Just more of the same. Give him more of the same. Continue to weep with him. Continue to cry with him. Continue to be with him. Continue to no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Continued. Oh. Oh. If only that had been the case. 
If if you want to know how to comfort the way God wants us to comfort, church family, just just read Job chapter 2, 11 through 13, and, and then do it. Go and do. If you want to know how to comfort the wrong way, keep reading. Because what follows, starting in chapter 4, really through the end of Job, is, um, is a conversation that Job has with his friends. And after this lament in chapter 3, uh, Job speaks with each of his friends. And, it's, and it is a heated conversation. It is an argument. And, and it, it, it goes like this. Eliphaz responds to Job. And then Job responds to Eliphaz. And then, uh, and then Bildad responds to Job. And then Job responds to Bildad. And then Zophar responds to Job. And then Job responds. And that's round one. Job's replying back and forth to each of his friends. Okay? And then round two happens. Eliphaz, Job. Bildad, Job. Zophar, Job. And then round three happens. And, 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 and then... And then we're going to see a mysterious figure called Elihu, and we'll talk about him later, and he speaks, and then God speaks, and then the book ends, <laughs> okay? But, but, but round one, round two, round three, today we're going to talk about Job's conversation with Eliphaz, and next week we'll go to Bildad and Zophar, et cetera, but I, you know, round one, I mean, all of the issues on the table are found in round one. I mean, at, so then why round two and round three? Well, because, I mean, you've had an argument. I mean, in my arguments with Sarah, all of the issues are on the table in five minutes. What happens afterwards? The volume gets kicked up. That's what happens. Huh? I mean, come on. That's, and that's what happens here. All the issues are on the table, first round, and then round two and round three. You just yell louder. That's how you win, Okay? And so Eliphaz speaks first, probably because he is the oldest. And chapter 4, verse 1, Eliphaz, the Temanite, replied, if someone ventures a word with you, Job, that's something I want to talk about here. Something I want to, if someone ventures a word with you, would you, you know, would you be impatient? I mean, but, I mean, who can keep from speaking, you know? I mean, and he goes on to say, now, Job, you know, you've instructed many. You've, you've been a pillar, your words have supported those who've stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees, and you, you can just predict what the next three-letter word is going to be that comes right out of his mouth. It's the word, but, but, right? But now trouble comes to you, and you're discouraged, and it strikes you, and you're dismayed. Come on, Job, Job, Job. And then he says this, and here it is, verse 7 and 8. Consider now, Job. Who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? Job, as I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Now, what did he just say? Huh? What? Talk to me. What did he just say? It's your own fault, Job. It's your fault. It's your fault, Job. You reap what you sow. You you sow. We all know farming, Job. Come on. You plant. You see corn. That means somebody planted corn. 
You see beans? Somebody planted beans. You see wheat? That farmer planted wheat in Job. There's trouble and suffering that's come out of your life. I mean, you planted that Job. If A, then B, Job, Job, come on. It's, the, it's, what the, it's what the Bible calls the law of the harvest, the law of the harvest. And do you know what? Here's the thing. It's biblical. Yeah. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. There it is. That's Eliphaz. Ah, well, yeah, well, yeah, so, so, I mean, so while what Eliphaz says is, you know, not unbiblical, while what Eliphaz is talking about is not untrue, it just doesn't apply to Job. Why? Because we've read Job 1 and 2. That's why. We've read, we were there. We overheard the conversation between God and Satan. That's why. And Eliphaz wasn't there, but yet he acts as if he were there. You see? He just, he just, he acts like, why was that? No, you weren't there. You weren't there. You don't know. But he talks as if he does know. Furthermore, in his, you know, rebuttal to Job, he, he uses the God spoke to me argument. Oh, my goodness. This gets rich. Verse 12. A word was secretly brought to me, Job. My ears caught a whisper of it amid disquieting dreams in the night when deep sleep falls on men. Verse 15, a spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. You know, goosebumps. Verse 16, a form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker's Job? You've sinned. God spoke to me. God spoke. You ever heard somebody say that to you? Well, God, God told me to tell you this. Oh, really? You say, Randy, you're sounding pretty cynical. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. I said, because when, when you, when I hear someone say, well, God spoke to me, this goes right up because this is my filter. And if what you say God said to you doesn't align with what His permanent written Word has said, then I don't think the Holy Spirit spoke to you. I think you just had too much salsa at Dos Reales. That's what I think. Okay? You, you just take an ANS. Take Pepsi. You'll get better. Really. I mean, are we going to be a church that's Acts 17, 11? Are we going to be an Acts 17, 11 church? The Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they examined the Scriptures every day to see what the Apostle Paul said was true or not. Are we going to be that? Or, or are we just going to be kind of naively, oh, well, God spoke to them, and so maybe that must be right. No, 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 no. no. What's Eliphaz's solution? Well, Job, if they then be, law of the harvest, you have sinned, and that's caused your suffering. Therefore, what you need to do is you need to repent. You need to turn back to God, chapter 5, verse 8. But if it were I, I would appeal to God. If it were me, Job, I would lay my cause before him. That's what I would do. You need to repent, man. 
Verse 17, chapter 5, blessed is the man whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. You've suffered because you've sinned, so now repent, and God will reward you, Job. Come on, that's the way the system works, man. Verse 25, you will know that your children will be many. You get your kids back, and your descendants like the grass of the earth. And Verse 27, we have examined this, and it is true, so hear it and apply it to yourself. <sighs> End of Eliphaz's speech. Sometimes, instead of continuing Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, sitting on ground zero and weeping. Sometimes believers are tempted to apply rigid, sterile, theological systems in an attempt to comfort sufferers. And that's what we see here. You know anybody like Eliphaz? You know anybody like him? Huh? I mean, they don't know how to say they don't know. They see someone that they say, oh, uh, unruly kids? Nah, poor parenting. Pfft, that's easy. Uh, uh, they say, oh, you're divorced. <laughs> you must have been a failure as a spouse. Well, you got fired on a job. Oh, well, you must be lazy. That's it. If A, then B, law of the harvest. And what he does is he, 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 he takes this, this generally biblically true proverb and he fossilizes it. And he creates a sterile, stainless steel, rigid, theological box. And he stuffs Job into it. And he stuffs God into it. Yeah, he stuffs God into it. And, and he makes God subservient to his box. Makes God subservient to how he thinks about God. And he makes Job subservient to as well. And, and church family, that's not to say that we shouldn't study the Bible systematically or categorically or organize topics. But if one of your topics isn't the mystery of God, then that's an incomplete list. And Eliphaz just, you know. And what happens is he ends up, he, he ends up doing the exact opposite of what he in first intended to come to do. I mean, he intended to come and sympathize and comfort Job. And just as Job in his intense grief and suffering wound up saying things he just wouldn't ordinarily say, what happens is, is you know, <laughs> just a bit of pastoral advice. When you go to the critical care unit, leave this at home. Oh, come on, Steve, we're going to, you look sick. So what we're going to do is we're going to figure out what, what the deal is. We're going to draw diagrams, okay? If A, then B, law of the harvest. And so you reap in what you sow. And do you see it? And let's, you know, and then, now don't you feel better? Oh, man. Leave this at home, please. Okay? Don't take, this, don't take this to the hospital with you. 
Don't take this to the emergency room with you. Don't take this to the visitation. And even months afterwards, when there's still just aching grief, leave this at home, okay? Just leave this at home, really. And what happens is, is Eliphaz, you know, Job says things he wouldn't have ordinarily said. And you know what? Eliphaz ends up saying things. He didn't, I don't think Eliphaz intended to come to Job and just, but it just came out, see, because he ended up defending this, this, this rigid, sterile theological system, this box. Lose the box. And what happens is in rounds two and three, it just gets worse. Job chapter 15, verse 2. Eliphaz says to Job, would a wise man answer with empty notions or fill his belly with the hot east wind? Oh, Job, you're just a windy bagpipe, man. And what about 15, verse 9? What do you know that we don't know? What do you, what do you know that we don't know? What insights do you have that we don't have? Come on, man, huh? And then in round three, it gets really dirty. He says, what pleasures would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? What, huh? What would, what would he gain if your ways were blamed? Is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? And then in chapter 22, he, he, just, he just starts making these things up. You demanded security from your brothers for no reason. You stripped men of their clothing, leaving them naked. You, could he be right? No, he couldn't be right because we've read chapters 1 and 2. Job was blameless and upright and he feared God and he shunned evil. God himself said that. But Eliphaz, he's got to protect his system. So he just starts making it up. You sent widows away empty-handed. You broke the strength of the fatherless. It just gets louder and louder and louder in the attempt to justify and, and defend his own system. And he's of no help whatsoever. And unfortunately, his descendants are still around in some churches. Descendants who don't know how to say they don't know. Who, descendants who don't, who just are, are, are willing to just, just listen and be silent and weep aloud, you know. And I wish Eliphaz would have been able to say, I don't know, Job. Or I wish Eliphaz would have been able to say, Job, do you want to come home with me? You know, there's not, that's not there, is it? Why? Because he's, he's saying things he wouldn't ordinarily say because he's got to protect this. Job's not saying, th saying things he wouldn't ordinarily say. What, what's the response here? What's the answer? The answer for us today, church family, is for us to... The answer is not, okay... Stay focused on Job 2, 11 through 13 and just, just remember that and do your best and work at it. That's, that's not really going to help. It's not. It's not going to help. What's going to help is for us today, the redeemed people of God, is to go to the one who is the ultimate source of comfort. And there's something that Eliphaz said in these verses that draw our attention to the ultimate source if we're willing to pay attention. Eliphaz said in Job chapter 4, verse 7, 
Consider now who being innocent ever perished. Who, we know the answer to that question, don't we? Who being innocent ever perished? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was innocent and Jesus perished. Hebrews 2.17 says, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus Christ is the source of ultimate comfort. The cross is the source of ultimate comfort, because on the cross the innocent perished Jesus took our pain so that we could be saved. And, and the glory of it is, the beauty of it is, is that, you know, Job, Job doesn't understand his suffering. We understand his, Job is relatively, Jesus is perfectly innocent. And Jesus knows, and he knows what to say then. In John chapter 9, the disciples are looking at a blind man, and the Lord says, uh, the disciples say, Lord, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus said, it's not about sin. It's not about whether this guy sinned or whether his parents sinned. It's not an if a This has happened so that God's glory would be put on display in his life. That's the only reason why this has happened. Why did Job suffer? It's not about sin. It's about that God's glory would be on display in this man's life. And here we're talking about it thousands of years later. The cross, the cross is about God's glory being put on display so that we would see the goodness and justice of God. And the goodness and justice of God is not like our goodness and justice because people look at what happened at Northern Illinois University and they say, what kind of a God is good to allow that. And the answer is the kind of a God who is good enough to allow an innocent man to suffer for the sins of the world. His goodness is different than our goodness, and we need to understand that. And if we can understand that and receive comfort in that, then, then you see, we are ready to extend the comfort that we have received as the redeemed people of God. 2 Corinthians 1 3 and 4 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we have received from God. You see that? And so we are the redeemed people, and God has comforted us at the cross. So now he has given us more than enough, more than enough to share more, you've got more than enough comfort. There's more than enough comfort to go around because it's the cross. And so when you, here's, here's how I do it. When you call me, you come to my office, we're at the emergency room, we're at the funeral home. My prayer is, oh, Jesus, how can, I be Je how can I be Jesus to this person? It really is that question. How, Jesus, how can I be Jesus to this person? How would Jesus respond? How would Jesus listen? How would Jesus look? How would Jesus hug? How would Jesus smile? How would Jesus cry? Lord, let me be Jesus to this person. And, and you can do that if you're among the redeemed. 
because you have the Holy Spirit living in you to share the comfort with others that you've received. How can I be Jesus to you? Yeah. And, and, and here's the deal. Job said things he wouldn't ordinarily say. His friends said things he wouldn't ordinarily say. When we comfort with the comfort of Christ, we say exactly what needs to be said and what not needs to be said. So the take-home is comfort. Comfort with the comfort of Christ. David Busby was a youth pastor And he was speaking to his students, and he kept using the phrase, have you received a hug from God today? Have you received a hug from God today? He kept, kept using that in his, in his talk. And afterwards, a 16-year-old came to him and said, he was annoyed. He said, I don't want to receive a hug from God today. David said, Okay. What do you want? 16-year-old said, I want to beat his chest. That's what I want to do. And he began to talk about his father, his young father who was afflicted with Alzheimer's, his young father afflicted with Alzheimer's who had to be put in a special care facility because he had digressed and digressed and digressed. And he said, my dad, the, the chair where my dad sat at home is empty. The seat in the boat where my dad used to take me to go fishing is empty. The space in the bleachers where my dad used to watch me play basketball is empty. And I just want to beat the chest of God. And David Busby, in the wisdom, in the wisdom that he had, he said, I want you to go home. I want you to go to your bedroom. And I want you to go to the mattress in your bed. I want you to go to the mattress. And, and I want you to pretend that that mattress is the chest of God. And I want you to give it your best shot. Because God can take it. And for one hour, that 16-year-old beat the chest of God in a pool of sweat and tears. And then he goes back to Busby. He said, for one hour, I beat the chest of God. Busby said, then what? And the young man in tears said, Then I felt the hug of God. Heavenly Father, thank you, Jesus, that you being innocent perished and took our pain so that we sinful, fallen might come to your family by grace through faith. We love you. Thank you for your comfort.